Okay, good morning. Good morning. It's great to see you. Hey, good to, to be with you this morning. Hey, we're going to grab our Bibles and going to jump straight to John chapter 6. Um, if you have your Bible, if you want to open it there, we're going to come to it in a moment. Hey, if you want to find it on your phone, John chapter 6. And we're going to do verses 1 to 12. This morning we steer into the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus fed the multitude of people with a few loaves and a couple of fish. And as we begin to examine it, we'll come to the verses in a moment, but as we begin to examine it, we do some really important groundwork and we look at some of the background stuff. Now, the story of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. And that would suggest then that it's something quite significant. And what is interesting is that although it is the only miracle that is mentioned in all four of the Gospels, when you read the story from each of the Gospels, what you don't read is a story that is word for word the same. As each Gospel writer records the story, each one brings out a particular emphasis. In Matthew and in Luke, the account of the miracle is quite short, and the emphasis tends to be on simply recording the facts. In Mark's gospel, however, he places the emphasis in quite a different place. He emphasizes the compassion of Christ and he he sets out the compassion of Jesus as the motivation for delivering the miracle in the first place. John's version, which is the one that we're going to be unpacking today, is quite different. His version uh, of events contains a lot more detail. It is more wordy. As a wordy person, then that's the one that we tend to jump into to learn a little bit more about the meaning and the significance of this miraculous event. However, here's the important thing in our background work, is that all four of the gospel writers record this miracle in their individual way. And although it is ultimately the same event that they're describing, there are some very clear differences and distinction in their description. But even though the gospel writers differ in their accounts, the differences tend to be more on emphasis than they are on detail. And that is actually helpful for us. Because the fact that all four accounts agree on detail shows that this story is not one that was made up by each of them separately. And equally, the fact that there are differences in emphasis shows that these guys weren't collaborating on what they were writing either. And in fact, if the stories weren't made up separately and they weren't made up collaboratively, then the logical conclusion is that they weren't made up at all. The accounts of Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, and John 6 are accurate accounts of a supernatural event that took place in the ministry of Jesus. They are seen from four different eyewitness perspectives. And when we piece them together, we're actually better off because we begin to see the fuller and the bigger picture. Now, what we focus on today as we approach it is what this miracle as a whole teaches us. So we jump into John's gospel because it's more detailed, and we touch base on the other three along the way. And we begin at verse 1 that says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. So this story, much like many of the stories, begin with Jesus taking a trip from one side of the lake to the other. And John's gospel opens up the whole narrative by saying sometime after this. 
So the obvious first question that arises in our minds, and the first thing that we need to call out from the get-go, is what is the this that the boat trip occurred sometime after? What is the this? And the way that John's Gospel is written, it would suggest that the miracle that immediately preceded this one is what motivated the whole journey. And the miracle that preceded this one was the healing of the man, the paralyzed man sitting at the edge of the pool. The story goes that Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, shock horror. And as a result of his absolutely shocking and disgraceful actions in helping this man, he begins to face some serious persecution. In fact, John 5 and verse 17, as it describes Jesus responding to those that are persecuting him, actually reveals just how difficult things have got for Jesus. It says, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus had healed a guy, and because he'd done it on the Sabbath, and he called God Father, they're like, we need to kill this guy. And you think, well, that's an overreaction. And it's quite shocking for us to read, and any of us in that situation where we'd done something good and people were, were calling for our blood and wanting to kill us, any of us would be scared, but not Jesus. Jesus proceeds in an incredibly Jesus-y way to firmly put these guys in their place whilst at the same time confronting them with the truth, whilst at the same time condemning them for their behavior, and whilst at the same time doing it in a way that nobody can argue with, but yet actually that's exactly what they did. They argued with them. And as John outlines all of this for us, we can see that things are heating up for Jesus and things have become a little bit uncomfortable in Jerusalem. He's facing conflict, he's facing confrontation, he's facing opposition on every front. So he moves on from there. He sets sail to the other side of the lake. Now, if you take Matthew's version of events, then he tells you that in actual fact, it was an entirely different reason that motivated Jesus' journey across the Sea of Galilee. According to him, it was the beheading of John the Baptist that caused Jesus to jump into a boat and seek a solitary private place. But if you read Mark's version and Luke backs him up, then the story goes that the disciples have just returned from their first ever missions trip. And they're telling Jesus everything that has just happened, the healings and the deliverance and the salvations and the miracles. And as they begin to recount this, Mark tells us, because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. According to these verses, these guys have been involved in so much ministry and they've been so focused on others for so long that they've neglected their own needs. So Jesus insists that they regroup, relax, and refresh. You'd almost think, I'm almost becoming a proper preacher there, eh? <laughs> Three alliterated words there. Regroup, refresh. Audrey's oh, utterly ashamed and disgusted. Now, pulling all of this together... What we see is that the four gospel writers present different views, but all agree that the boat journey was made, but they all differ in the reason why. One says it's due to opposition, conflict, and personal attack. One says it's due to personal grief, and the other two say that the journey is to rest, regroup, and refresh the three hours. Now, which one is right? Which one is right? Well, having read the gospels, and understanding the way that they 
are written, and having followed the ministry of Jesus, we come to the conclusion that actually probably all of them are correct. Because each one is an eyewitness account. Each one holds a piece of the puzzle that when we put them together, actually presents the bigger, wider picture. Now, we'll come back to our background detail in a bit, but for now, we focus on the fact that Jesus journeyed from one side of the lake to the other, and here's what happens. It says, a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he'd performed by healing the sick. As Jesus makes this journey, as he travels by boat, a crowd of people make the exact same journey on foot. Now, why do they make this journey? Why do they go to this effort? Why do they travel around the circumference of the lake? Well, the reason is, according to John, their motivation is because of the miraculous signs and wonders that Jesus performed. And we make a bit of a side note here, but actually it's not quite a rabbit hole, it is, but it's not really because it's helpful. We notice that the text doesn't say a great crowd of people followed him because they knew that he was the son of God. And so they decided to follow him because they understood his identity was. Neither does it say that a great crowd of people followed him because they knew he was the Messiah. They've been waiting for the Messiah for centuries, and now here he is, and so they're not letting him out of their sight. doesn't say that. Neither does it say that a great crowd followed him because they had put their faith and trust in him, committed their whole life to him and his ways, and they had prayed the sinner's prayer. Therefore, they were following him all the days of their lives. Now, actually, what the Scripture says is that a great crowd followed him because they saw the signs that he'd performed by healing the sick. These people followed him basically to see what he would do next. They were following him geographically, but not necessarily spiritually. This is not unusual. In fact, the scriptures tell us that wherever Jesus went, there was normally always a great crowd that accompanied him. And what caused the great following was the miracles and the supernatural manifestations that accompanied his presence. People wanted to see these miracles. People wanted to be on the receiving end of a miracle. They wanted to to see these exploits that he was doing. But the fact that Jesus had a huge crowd following him about didn't mean that everyone in the crowd believed that he was the Messiah. They might have been following him geographically, but that doesn't mean that they were following him spiritually. Now, we can't apply that as a sweeping rule entirely. There would have been those that followed him to see his miracles, and after following him for a period of time and seeing the kingdom in action and hearing his teaching, there would have been those that would have made an informed decision about who Jesus was and even formed a belief about his identity and his teaching. But what we've got to be open to is this. Sometimes people follow Jesus geographically before they begin to follow him spiritually. Sometimes people need to hang around Jesus for a bit, check him out a bit, understand him a bit, before they become, come to a belief of who he is and put their faith and trust in him and begin a relationship and a forever journey with him. And the problem is that in the evangelical world, we have this terrible habit of viewing salvation as an event when in actual fact it is a process. In fact, it's a journey even. And if salvation is a process and a journey, then surely our evangelism effort should be also. But we do have this habit of, here is the gospel, now respond. Here it is, pray the prayer, believe it right now, this instant. But we need to recognize that sometimes people need to follow Jesus geographically before they begin to follow him spiritually. And what we mean by that is that sometimes people need to come to church for a bit. 
Sometimes people need to attend an alpha course or two or three. Sometimes people need to have spiritual conversations. They need to read books. They need to read the Bible. They need to read flyers. Sometimes they need to hear stories of faith or testimonies of transformed lives from other people before they come to asking Jesus into their lives. Sometimes they need to follow him geographically, as in be in the vicinity of the location of the presence of Jesus, his word, and his people for a while, just to check him out, just to think it through, just to process and receive the truth before they then walk across the line of faith and ask Jesus to become their Lord and Savior. People tend to hang about with Jesus geographically before they begin to follow him spiritually. And as we are beginning to seek God to shape our culture and the culture that we carry, maybe we need to reframe things a little bit. And maybe we need to make room for that in our culture. That actually it's okay for people to come and not be sure. It's okay for people to come and question. It's okay for people to come and just think about it for a while. To exist in church. And to go, I'm not sure I believe that. I'm not sure you're right. It's okay for us to challenge, for folks to challenge us on that. Apart from me, I'm always right. <laughs> Except for when my wife comes into the room, she is always right. <laughs> but it's okay. And maybe actually we need to reframe it in our minds to take a bit of encouragement. That that friend that came to church but didn't respond at the altar call, that's all right. Don't give up. Keep going. Those family members and friends that we've been witnessing to, but there doesn't seem to be any movement yet, that's okay. Because sometimes people need to hang about Jesus geographically and process a little bit before they begin to follow him spiritually. However, equally, there comes the challenge. Because actually, Jesus tends to use this thing called us. And he uses us to be that which people hang around geographically. In our workplace, in our uni, in our relationships and in our friendships, in our day-to-day lives and in our community, are we living in such a way that when people hang around us, they're actually hanging around Jesus, encountering him and who he is. Sometimes people follow Jesus geographically before they do spiritually. The Jesus and the disciples, they get into the boat and the crowd follow him and what happens next is amazing. You ready for this? It says this. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. (laughs) That didn't really sound amazing, does it? And it kind of sounds like Jesus made the journey from one side of the lake to the other just to sit down on a mountain with his pals. And actually that is kind of true. Jesus crosses the lake and it appears that he just sits down and waits. Because as far as I can see, the only real purpose in traveling across the lake was to feed the 5,000. Because no sooner has he fed the 5,000 than they all jump in the boat and they head back across the other side of the lake again. So they jump in the boat, travel to the other side of the lake, they feed the 5,000, all change back in the boat over to the other side of the lake again, which would suggest that the point in making this trip was to feed the 5,000. The commentators and theologians reckon that this miracle took place on the other side of the lake near a town called Bethsaida Julius which is not to be confused with Bethsaida in Galilee because that's where they sailed, according to Mark, that's where they sailed after this miracle had taken place. And next to Bethsaida Julius, near where the river Jordan flowed into the Sea of Galilee, was a grassy plain, a plain in a position sizable enough for a vast amount of people to organize themselves into groups of 50 and to even sit down in groups of 50. 
And the text backs that up. Matthew tells us that as evening approached, the disciples came and said, this is a remote place. And remote places tend to be open, spacious places. So in actual fact, this journey that Jesus made was as much about positioning as it was about anything else. It was about God positioning him where there was space for the miraculous. This journey was about God positioning him in a setting and in an arena that was suitable for him to function in his ministry and to function in his work for God. In other words, God positioned him where there was space for him and space for his ministry. Because back on the original side of the lake, there was the crowd of people. So it wasn't that Jesus had to make this journey to get to the crowd in order to feed them. Well, the crowd was already there, and the text tells us they took this journey, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to get away from the crowds. And the scripture tells us that as they made it, they followed them round the vicinity of the lake. So it's not that the crowd wasn't on the original side, and he had to get to the crowd on the other side to feed them. The point that we're trying to make here is that Jesus could have performed the miracle where he originally was but he didn't. He made the journey across the water because there wasn't space for him to minister on the original side. On the original side of the lake, there was confrontation and conflict. There was opposition. They wanted him dead because of his claims. On the original side of the lake, his disciples were exhausted due to the demands of ministry. And on top of that, John the Baptist was dead. So everything was marked with a tinge of grief. There wasn't space for him to minister on the original side. There wasn't space emotionally, mentally, physically, perhaps even spiritually. So God positioned him in an arena that was suitable for him, where there was space for him to minister. And look at what God used to get him there. He used conflict and confrontation. Grief pressure, exhaustion, stress, and the need for rest. These were the conditions that caused Jesus to move from where he was to a space that was suitable for him to minister. And you know, sometimes there's seasons in life in which God has to move us, unsettle us and uproot us, to position us where there is space for us to be and do what he's called us to be and do. And there can be times when we're in those seasons where it feels like everything we touch breaks and everyone falls out with us and, and it feels like the heavens are brass and, and it feels like we're going through stuff and we pray and it doesn't seem to shift and, and, and we have to navigate through life's uncertain circumstances and seasons and we're like, what's all this about? And I'm not saying that God sends these things, but rather what I would say is that sometimes God works through those things, uses those things, because in every situation, he works for the good of those who love him. And in those moments when we begin to press into him and when we begin to seek him and when we're at the end of ourselves and that's always the point that we begin to find the beginning of God. In those moments when we press into him, quite often he begins to bring in movement and momentum in the inner parts of who we are. And sometimes he uses those settings to move friendships and relationships out, to uproot us from situations and scenarios in order to put us where we're meant to be and release momentum into our lives. We don't have time to fully go into that. Because what we need to do is unpack the miracle itself. Let's look at verse 5 in John 6. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. As evening time approaches and it gets near the time when normally people would expect to eat, at this point, Jesus turns to Philip and says, Houston, we have a problem. Where are we going to buy food for all these people? 
As night falls on Jesus' open-air service, there comes a problem on the horizon. There's 5,000-plus people here who would have followed him across the water, and they are going to need fed. So Jesus turns to Philip, and he says to him, where are we going to get food? What are we going to do in this situation? Now, some commentators reckon that the reason that Jesus turned to Philip was because Philip was from the area, so he knew the context and the locality. This is his neck of the woods that they're in. This is his old stomping ground. This is his hood. This is his gaff. Will I stop now? Probably. So if you're going to ask anyone out of the dirty dozen what to do when there's a problem in that locality, then it's going to be Philip. He's your guy. However, Philip completely misunderstands the question. He reads this as Jesus giving him responsibility for the situation. Look at his response. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for everyone to have a bite. See, what Philip does here is he he slips into project manager mode. He's been given a problem and he's been asked how to solve it. And in response to the question, Jesus takes responsibility, Peter or Philip, whatever one it is, Philip, (laughs) takes responsibility of the situation. And what he does is he tries to project manage it. He analyzes the scene. He's like, so this group looks about 100 and this group, that looks about 100. So if we average that out, we've got quite a few thousand here. Now the average price of bread is X denarii. And if we portion control that and ration it a bit, then I reckon we can figure out the cost of wholesale supply. And he actually comes up with a figure. Eight months wages or 200 denarii. Philip has project managed the situation. He has analyzed the situation. He's done the figures in his head and he actually comes to Jesus with a quote. Jesus, I could do this whole buffet for you for 200 denarii and everyone goes home with a party bag in tow. He has totally missed the point. And he's taken responsibility for the situation. He's project managed it towards a solution when in actual fact he's missed it. Look at Jesus' question again. He said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread? Jesus in John's version of this event, he is the one who identifies that there's a problem here. He's the one that highlights the situation and brings it to Philip. And he says to Philip, Philip, what are we going to do about this? Because according to the passage, Jesus already has in mind what it is he's going to do. So the responsibility for the outcome of this, he's already taken it on board as his. He already has a plan for this situation. He already has a strategy. What he wasn't looking for was someone to come up with a strategy for him. He wasn't looking for someone to design and put together a plan for him. What he was looking for was someone to partner with him. Someone to say, what are your thoughts, Jesus? What's your plan? What's your purpose in this? What's your will? What are we going to do, Jesus? circumstances and scenarios, God often looks for those who will partner with him. Look at Ezekiel, Ezekiel 37, he's brought into the valley of dry bones and God says to him, son of man, can these bones live? And he's like, I've got an opinion on this. I've had a look about here. They're dry and they're scattered all over the place. I've got an opinion on this, but here's my answer. Sovereign Lord, you alone know. God, what do you want to do? What is your thoughts? What's on your mind? How can I partner with what your plan for this is? 
You see, it's only when we focus on his will being done that the kingdom breaks into situations and heaven turns up. It's only when we partner with his will and come into alignment with his purpose that we can begin to see heaven invading problems with solutions. And quite often when we find ourselves in dilemmas or we arrive in situations or we steer into problems and crises, as we journey into them, we often take them on as our own responsibility. And we turn to God and we tell him all about it as if it's only due to our outburst of intercession, stroke, rant, that he knows about this situation. Because we have prayerfully offloaded, God has now become aware of this situation that we're going through or that has unfolded, because otherwise he clearly wouldn't have had the foggiest, would he? And we analyze the situation and we look at it from every angle. And what we do is we come to him with our view of the situation. And then what we do is we pray from the place of our own perspective. And we outline what we perceive as the only possible outcome in the situation. Whereas what we need to realize is this. See this Jesus that we belong to. He's pure dead brilliant. He sees the beginning from the end and all the bits in between, which means he already sees about it, seen this. He already knows about it. He already understands. He's already got it. He already has a plan in mind as to what he's going to do. He already has a purpose for this situation, which means that actually our job in prayer and intercession is to come to him in the midst of the dilemma and say, Jesus, what are we going to do in this situation? How can I partner with you in this moment? How can I partner with your purpose and your will within this situation? How can I align with your agenda for the circumstance? And how can I align this circumstance to your agenda? And when we come and we begin to pray in those ways, then what we actually do in asking those questions is we hand responsibility for that situation over to him and we make the outcome of the situation his responsibility. He sees this, he knows this, he's already got a plan for this. So the outcome of this, well, it's on his shoulders. And he's got pretty big shoulders. It's only when we partner with his will that we see heaven invading circumstances with solutions. And here's an important point when it comes to the miraculous. It's not about entering the situation and commanding heaven to move in accordance with our strategy. It's not about decreeing and declaring this and binding that and commanding this to happen and releasing that to happen. It's actually the other way around. It's not about walking into situations and commanding heaven to move in accordance with our strategy. It's about walking into a situation and allowing heaven to command our strategy and our function and the way that we behave and the way that we act and the steps that we take. And the problem is that quite often when we come to him, we pray from the place of our perspective. We project, manage, and analyze the situation, and we pray from the place of our perspective, whereas radical change comes when we begin to intercede from the place of his perspective. How are you viewing this? What do you want to do in this? Well, let's pray about that. Let's come into alignment with that in intercession. Let's believe for that together. There comes a big shift, and we see this from the miracle. Philip analyzes the situation, and he looks at it from the perspective of human resource, whereas Andrew walks into the scene, and he views it entirely differently. He says, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? 
This guy, one of my best friends in the whole world is called Andrew, and he is just like this. He's the kind of guy that says, how are we going to make this work? He's the glass half full kind of guy. He brings joy everywhere he goes. And here in this situation where Philip is analyzing and crunching figures, Andrew goes into the crowd to see what they've got. And he comes back with a small boy and a small packed lunch. So Philip's like, this is crazy. How are we going to make this work? Whereas Andrew's like, will this work? Will we give this a go? And he brings what they have to Jesus. And what they have is pretty insignificant. And Andrew must know this because he says, how far will this go among so many? He knows that it's small, but he doesn't dismiss it as useless. He brings it to Jesus to see what Jesus thinks about it. He's seeking Jesus' thoughts. He's like, here's what we have, Jesus. Now, what, what are you thinking? What's your thoughts about this? What, what's on your mind? What's your will? Andrew doesn't dismiss the small portion as irrelevant. Logically, it is. But his bringing it to Jesus shows his dependence not on human resources like Philip, but rather it shows his dependence on heaven's resources. It's all that we've got, Jesus, but we bring it to you anyway, and we put it into your hands. We bring what we've got to partner with you in this situation. And from this, as we navigate this towards a conclusion, we pull out some points. And the first major point, actually, is this. The answer to the need is always in the house. There's a crisis that unfolds before them. Night is falling. It's really remote. There are all these people they have no food. How are they going to feed them? There's a crisis. And the resources that they needed to respond to that were located right there in the crowd. They didn't have to travel into town to find the resource. It didn't have to be parachuted in from elsewhere. The answer to the need, the resource that was required was right there within the crowd that gathered in the presence of Jesus. The resources that were needed were located in the crowd of the people, but they just needed to be put into the hands of Jesus. And this actually teaches us a lot as a church. It teaches us that when there is a need, the answer to the need is always within the house. Let me be brutally honest this pastor. At the beginning of the year, as we gathered in Vision Day, we spoke about how God was saying that we need to increase in resources. In order to grow and to be all that we are meant to be, we need to increase in resources. We've come to a place where, if I'm brutally honest, the church is steering into a period of need. Of course, the living crisis is hitting everybody. Bills are going up in everybody's houses. Everyone's feeling it. But we're feeling it as a church too. That's impacting us too. We have a need. But you know what? The answer to the need is in the house. The answer to the need, the resource that we need, is in the crowd that is gathering around the presence of Jesus. It's in the community that meet together to seek him and to share faith and to serve others. We just need to bring it and put it into the hands of Jesus. And when we do, he uses it to accomplish the miraculous. He uses it to respond to the need and some, we need to bring the resources that we have and partner with Christ. Now, the second thing that we learn actually is from the small boy, and the small boy, he gave sacrificially. Andrew found this boy with his small provision, and, and we've got to assume that 
he explained to the boy the dilemma that they were in and the need that they had. And we've got to assume that he asked the boy for his help. And all that the boy had was five small loaves and two small fish. In fact, commentators reckon that the fish were probably pickled sardines that were given to the boy just to help the dry bread go over. Like, it was dry, stale bread. And so the sardines, that's why there's only two of them, was just a bit of moisture to help it go down. And when we understand that, we have to assume then that this boy must be a poor boy from a poor family. Don't start singing Bohemian Rhapsody. But he must have been a poor boy from a poor family to have such a poor packed lunch. But here's the big thing. For him to share his lunch meant that he himself would get less. He would get less of the little that he had. And he must have figured that out. He must have saw the size of the crowd. He must have knew the size of his lunch and thought for that to go around would most likely mean that he wouldn't even get a crumb but he was willing to give of the little that he had to help others. He was willing to give of the little that he had to partner with Jesus in that moment and to serve the purpose of God. And this was sacrificial giving. And his heart of sacrificial giving, it sparked a miracle. The supernatural manifestation was fueled by the sacrificial gift that saw the kingdom break in and heaven invade. And here's the thing, when we give of what we have, when we give to God and we give it out of a selfless heart, we give sacrificially and God uses it to accomplish supernatural things. Now, as I say that, let me call this out so that we're absolutely clear we're not talking here about buying miracles. We don't believe in that nonsense of sowing in to get a miracle back or that you buy your healing or that you buy your anointing or that you buy your prophetic word or that you buy your deliverance or any of that nonsense. And I, and I use that word strongly intentionally. So when we talk about how sacrificial giving was the fuel for the supernatural manifestation, we're not talking about the sowing into ministries in order to receive back from heaven. What we're talking about is this. God has this mechanism that he chooses. And he says, see if you bring the tithe into the storehouse. See if you give out of what you've got. You're going to have a little less as a result. But if you give out of what you've got and you bring it into the, the, the storehouse that there would be food in my house, if you give what you've got and you bring it and you put it into the hands of Jesus to partner with him, here's what's going to happen. I'll open up heaven and pour out so much blessing that there won't be room for. So when we're talking here about sacrificial giving, we're not asking anyone to empty their bank accounts. We're not going to ask you today to empty your purse or your wallet. If you're here with a lady, your wallet's probably empty anyway. <laughs> joke. Please, joke. We're not going to ask you to remortgage your houses. I have this strong belief that the only thing a church should ever do is ask its people to tithe because that's what the Bible says. And the scripture says when you bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, I'll always make sure that there's enough. I'll always make sure that there's enough. And so, yes, there's times that we need to do special offerings, and yes, there's times that we need to do special giving and all that kind of stuff, and we say, pray and bring what you need to bring. But sometimes I wonder if the reason why we need to do those special things is because we don't bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Because if we did, he says, there'll always be enough. And so as pastor, 
I'm coming and being honest and saying, I think that maybe what God is looking to do is to unlock resource within the house. Because the answer to their need is already in the house. He just asks us to come and bring from what we've got. Understand that when we give, you do not give to Pastor Fraser and you do not even give to Elam. According to Scripture, when we give, we give to him. It's his. It belongs to him. And I think that today he could be calling us. Maybe it's time for us to unlock resource in the house. It's time to come and bring what we've got and put it into the hands of Jesus and watch him do incredible things. The third and final thing that we learn is from looking at what was given. And we're told this by Andrew. We're told that the boy brought five small barley loaves and two small fish. And there's really specific detail about the loaves, but there's no detail about the fish. What's that about? Well, barley bread was the cheapest of all breads and it was actually held in contempt. In the law of the day, barley bread was actually prescribed as a food offering for the sin of adultery. The thought process was barley was the food of animals and adultery was the sin of animals. So barley bread was the sin offering for adultery. And barley bread was therefore viewed and treated with utter contempt. In fact, many reading this in John's gospel, as they would have read the story, would have thought that this was hugely inappropriate to even put this into the hands of the Son of God. And when you step back and you look at this, what you've got here is this. You've got the packed lunch of the boy, and he's an insignificant individual. He's not even significant enough to be counted in the head count. It's just the men that were counted back in that day. So he was viewed as not being significant enough to be considered or to be included in the head count. You've got an insignificant boy with an insufficient packed lunch. It only contained five loaves and two fish. It is insufficient for the vast crowd. You've got an insignificant individual with an insufficient lunch that is inappropriate to put into the hands of Jesus or even into the hands of the crowd because it's made of barley bread of all breads. But when that which is deemed as insignificant, insufficient, and inappropriate is brought to Jesus, Jesus announces that it's appropriate. He took it in his hands and he used it to provide significant sufficiency to everybody that was gathered there. And you know what? There are times when we might think to ourselves that what we have is insignificant, that it isn't good enough. We might even think that of ourselves, that we are insignificant and insufficient. But when we put who we are and what we have into the hands of Christ, he announces that it's more than enough. It's more than good enough. And in fact, it is profoundly significant. When you come and you bring who you are and you give it to the cause of Christ, you are profoundly significant. When you come and you bring what you do and you give it to the cause of Christ, what you do becomes profoundly significant. When you come and you bring what you have and you put it into the hands of Christ, what you have becomes profoundly significant. In our eyes, there will always be someone who can bring more. There will always be someone that can do more. There will always be someone that can be more. But Jesus measures things completely differently to us. His maths is totally different. Five loaves and two fish can feed 5,000. He measures things differently. He says, when you give willingly, cheerfully, sacrificially, and intentionally who we are and what we have, then who we are and what we have becomes more than enough for his kingdom and becomes significant. 
The small boys packed lunch, fed multitudes with food left over. Let's bring this into land. It says, when they'd had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them, filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those that had eaten. I love the fact that in the kingdom there's no waste. I'm the kind of guy that when we go to Wagamama's and the kids have finished eating, I start. And finish, there's no waste. No waste. I love the fact that in the kingdom there's no waste. Jesus instructs that the remains be gathered in and they gathered in 12 basketfuls. And in our minds we think of 12 big baskets, but that's not the right picture. In New Testament, if you remember, they had this whole issue of what food was clean to eat and what food wasn't clean to eat. And that meant that Jewish people carried around with them a basket. It was a bottle-shaped type container, often attached to the belt, that they used to contain their food that was clean and pure and good to eat. And the Jewish custom also was that at feasts, you always left aside some of your meal to feed those that had been serving you. So we have to assume then that as the crowd ate, and the text suggests that they ate and they had their fill, that as they ate, they more than likely left some aside for those who were serving. And the remainder filled 12 baskets. In other words, it provided a full portion for each of the disciples too. You see, a need arose, and the answer was within the crowd. An individual gave selfishly, selflessly and sacrificially. And they gave what they had, and as they did, they partnered with the will of God, and they partnered with the purpose of God for that moment. And although what they offered was insignificant, insufficient, and inappropriate, when they put it into the hands of Christ, heaven invaded that situation, and it became appropriate, it became significant, and it became more than enough to not only resource the purpose of God, but to resource the people of God too. And all because of a dependency on heaven's resources, and not on human resources. Glasgow Elam, we are dependent on heaven's resources, not human resources, amen? When needs arise, the answer to the need is already within the house. When we bring what we have out of a desire to partner with the will of God, when we put what we have into the hands of Christ and trust him, he uses it to accomplish the miraculous. And as we enter into this season where God is shaping culture, he's looking to unlock resource within the house. And he's looking to unlock and change the culture of our thought process towards situations, dilemmas, towards intercession and towards giving. And so as we step into this season, we put what we have into the hands of Jesus and we trust that whatever it is, it is more than enough. Would you stand with